Now please join me in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. I need to make just a slight change to what we find in the bulletin. It sometimes happens, well it always happens, that the pastor begins a week with a certain plan as to what we're going to cover, and it sometimes happens that we don't get to do that, <laughs> that I get late in the week uh, and realize, actually, there's, there's a lot more here in this section, and we're going to zero in a little bit. I think in, in the passage that I had originally planned uh, for us to look at together today, which is verses 31 through 35, in itself not very long, uh, but I think there are really two things happening there. The first three verses, which is my hope that we'll look at together tonight, verses 31 to 33, uh, focus on the determination of Christ to save his people. And then in verses 34 and 35, uh, this passage focuses on Christ's compassion for those even who reject him. And I think there is, uh, there's enough here, more than enough here, for us to, to fill our time and our meditations on Christ uh, for two weeks. And so, Lord willing, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look today at verses 31 uh, to 33 and come back next week and finish this passage, verses 34 and 35. But a reminder, uh, we are here, and, and verse 31 will begin by telling us at the very same hour, that is the hour that Jesus has just been going on his way through villages and towns, journeying toward Jerusalem. And if you were here with us or, or listened in last week, you know that Christ has just been telling those who hear him to press into the narrow door of God's salvation. And it is there, at that very moment, at that very hour, that Pharisees come uh, and warn Jesus about a plot upon his life. That's where Luke picks up. Uh, the account tonight, and that's where we're going to be reading tonight, verses 31 to 33 of Luke chapter 13. Before we read this and study it together, I want to ask that you would join me again in prayer and seek the Lord's blessing upon the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. O gracious and righteous Lord, you who made light shine out of the darkness, we pray that you would give the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ of the hearts of your people, that you would shine into our hearts, that we would see him, we would know him, we would rejoice more in who Christ is for us and for your people. Do it for your sake, and through Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, now as we have been doing, I ask that you please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31 and reading to verse 33. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You may be seated. Scott McKnight. Uh, Scott McKnight is, is a New Testament scholar. He is a theology professor at Northern Seminary in, in Illinois. And every year, on the first day of class for his first-year students, Dr. McKnight administers a really relatively simple test. It is an exam that consists of 24 questions uh, about what students who are entering into the school think Jesus might have been like based upon their reading of the Gospels. Really, it's largely 
uh, psychological personality type questions. What do you think Jesus might have been like? What was his personality? Do you think that Jesus might have been moody sometimes? Do you think that Jesus ever got nervous? Do you think that Jesus was, was the star of the show, the, the, uh, the, the life of the party everywhere he went, or maybe was he more of an introvert? 24 questions, and when the students are finished with that exam, they're all given a second exam. 24 more questions, and the wording is slightly different, and now they're asked to explain their own personality. <laughs> and after years of this exercise, Dr. McKnight says that the results are remarkably consistent, that most people think Jesus, coincidentally, was a lot like them. <laughs> he also says the tests suggest that even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is likely the case that we try to make Jesus more like ourselves. Actually, 250 years ago, that was one of Voltaire's criticisms of Christianity. He quipped that if God has made us in his image, then we have returned the favor. I mean, it's hard work sometimes. It's difficult getting far enough out of the way to read the Bible without seeing ourselves everywhere we turn. Except that is exactly what we need to do if we want to see Jesus as he really is. As we read the Gospels, these New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, there are blessings here for us. There are lessons here for us of all kind. We learn a lot about ourselves and about uh, the sins in our hearts. We learn a lot about how we ought to live and, and the things that God demands of us. We learn about patterns of sins and rebellion and the way that, that humanity rejects God's offer of salvation. But the primary blessing in the Gospels is getting to see Jesus, learning who he is learning what he is like, seeing what he's done to draw sinners to himself. That's the goal. That's the challenge. Every time we read the Gospels, the goal and the challenge is getting to see Christ not as we imagine him, but as Scripture presents him to us. Jesus as he really is. And this short passage before us, I believe, is a portrait of the Savior. It's a snapshot. It shows us something of who he is. And, and just these three verses, I think the focus here of, of this portrait is upon the determination of Jesus. It shows us Jesus in unrelenting persistence, not to be served, but to serve. His will fixed, his determination to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And in these verses, through this picture, we see that Luke is presenting to us the Savior who will stop at nothing to complete the work of saving his people. Now, this is a passage that's all about Jesus, so maybe we need a warning at the beginning not to get distracted by the background scenery. That could happen, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, excuse me, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And that raises all kinds of questions for us. <laughs> we we want to know what's going on with Herod. He's shown up a few times already in Luke's gospel. We want to know why Jesus all of a sudden is on Herod's radar. And especially we want to know what about these Pharisees? What are they doing here? And we have conjectures. We have guesses that we could fill all the silent space of Scripture. We could try to figure it out. We could wonder if, if perhaps uh, Herod and the Pharisees are in cahoots. Maybe they're trying silently, slyly to push Jesus in the direction of Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin can sink their teeth into him. Or maybe we hope, maybe these Pharisees are 
secret followers of Jesus just like Nicodemus. And we have all sorts of unanswered questions, but none of those unanswered questions are Luke's focus. He doesn't tell us any of that. And so we're going to have to leave the background in the background because Luke's whole point, this warning from the Pharisees, is simply another opportunity to pay attention to Jesus and to see him. You see, verse 31 presents us, presents Jesus with a conundrum. There is a man with earthly power who wants to see Christ dead, and maybe a change of scenery would be good for his ministry. It's a temptation, actually. It's a temptation that's not unlike the temptation that came to Jesus in the desert at the, at the lips, at the voice of Satan. He suggested that Jesus ought to use his power to make things a little bit more uh, easy for himself. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That is, why don't you take the easy way out, Jesus? Why don't you distrust your Father's provision and what he's called you to? Why don't you do things your own way? Why don't you go in a different way? That's what's at stake in verse 31. Luke doesn't care about Herod's psychological profile. He doesn't even care if these Pharisees are true followers of Jesus or false ones. None of those things are the focus. Verse 31 sets up another occasion to prove to us, as we learned in chapter 9, that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. His will is fixed. There is nothing... There is no one that will stand in the way of Jesus completing the course the Father has called him to. This passage is all about Jesus' determination to complete the work of saving his people. I think you see that determination in the way that Jesus responds to the Pharisees. You see it in the way that Jesus is unintimidated by human power. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, you go and tell that fox. That's surprising. That's maybe something that we don't expect to see or to hear from Jesus. This is, this is almost surprisingly strong language. We know the metaphor of a fox as somebody who's sly, somebody who's crafty, who's, who's twisting things in their own direction uh, to, to their own gain and, and maybe trying to cover it over. And in Jewish literature, that was one of the ways that a fox was used. It was one of the metaphors uh, connected to this animal, but by far, uh, the, in the Middle Eastern world, and for the Jews, the fox signified somebody who was insignificant. Think of all of the predators in the Middle Eastern world. Wolves, and bears, and lions, and raiding bands of jackals that could take a calf and strip it to the bone in a matter of minutes. All of the Palestinian predators, and the fox was the least concern for most people. At most, it was a nuisance. In fact, in the Song of Solomon, uh, it shows up as just that. Let's go gather the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Just the, those little things. Well, here it is as well. Just go tell that fox, that little man, that insignificant man. One older commentator suggested that to call Herod a fox is to say that he's neither a great man nor a straight man. That he has neither majesty nor honor. Insignificant. Jesus is unintimidated by human power. Maybe you would have been. I, I certainly, probably, uh, certainly, probably would have been, however that works out. I bet I would have been. I bet you would be too if you were there because uh, you know that Herod was not just a man of, of idle threats. 
You only needed to see the head of John the Baptist on a platter to realize that he was a man that could, could put force behind his desires to rid his domain of another prophet. Herod was a man with power, a power that he could do whatever, basically whatever he wanted to with. He represented the puppet strings of the Roman Empire, holding on to what appeared to be a legitimate Jewish monarchy. It was a tetrarchy, really. It was a monarchy broken into four pieces. And so Herod and his, his three siblings each took a quarter of the kingdom that used to be managed by Herod the Great. But the point is that if Herod wanted to rid his little corner of the kingdom from some uh, roving prophet in his own backyard, there was nobody on earth who cared enough to be able to stop him. There was somebody who could stop him, though. There was somebody in heaven, not on earth. In fact, I think that's, that's how we explain the language of contempt that shows up on Jesus' lips, because Jesus isn't just speaking as an individual. He's speaking as a prophet. He's speaking here in verse 32, revealing heavenly realities in an earthly realm. Think back to Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then down to verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is the only person we find in all of the Gospels that Jesus seems to ridicule. And he doesn't, he doesn't do it to give us uh, a sort of pattern that if there's a politician we don't like, we're, we're safe to go and, and haul off and use all sorts of invective against them. No, he's, he's doing it as a prophet. God in heaven is laughing at insignificant Herod, that little fox of a man. And the fox is puffing his chest and the lion of Judah is roaring. That's what we see here. The Lord is holding Herod in derision and Jesus is joining in the heavenly laughter. Despite all the opposition, Jesus is unintimidated by human power. He's also undisturbed in fulfilling his ministry. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now in this context, the, the three days that Jesus is talking about here, they're the most likely symbolic rather than literal. Jesus isn't saying that I've got 72 more hours in, in, in Herod's dominion. He's saying that, that there is a short, definite period of time in which Jesus is going to fulfill each step of his earthly calling, and he's going to do it at his own pace and on his own timetable. He has a course of ministry marked out, and there's no opposition. There is no threat. There is no worldly human danger that's going to cause the Savior so much as a moment's hesitation. Well, the ministry that he's working out sounds strikingly similar to what we've heard already from Jesus. It's been a while since we spent uh, some time in Luke's gospel, so maybe a, a quick refresher on the things that we've heard from Jesus. What is it that he's doing in the world? What does his ministry consist of? Back in chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus preached in Nazareth. His first sermon in his hometown and he said that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Then in chapter 7, when John the Baptist wondered about Jesus and his ministry, John sent the, or Jesus rather, sent the messengers back to report, verse 22 of chapter 7, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, 
Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. Jesus sent out his disciples in chapter 9 with power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. You get the picture. Day by day, the kingdom of God is marching forth, and it's marching forth in visible signs of deliverance. The Lord is working his liberating power through Jesus Christ and into human lives, and it's all a part of a ministry of preparation. Casting out demons, performing cures, breaking chains of oppression and bondage to sin. It's all things that Jesus is using. He's planting them as signposts to point toward this greater deliverance. Jesus is talking here about a course not just to run, but a course to be completed. He's moving in a direction. He is undisturbed and continuing to move in that direction. I have demons to cast out. I have cures to perform, and I'm going to do it today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow until I finish my course. And he's going to finish that course. He's going to secure that deliverance on a cross outside Jerusalem. And Jesus is determined that nothing and no one will stand in his work of saving his people. Jesus is unintimidated by human power. He's undisturbed in fulfilling his ministry. He is unyielding in a march toward a sacrificial death. Maybe ironically, Jesus tells these Pharisees that he's going to do exactly what they suggested he ought to do. Their statement was to get away from here, to, to go somewhere that Herod can't reach you. And Jesus says eventually, actually, he is going to move on. It's not going to be on Herod's timetable. It's not going to be to avoid his death, but he is going to get away from where he's currently ministering. Now, verse 33, this is the point at which we need to be careful not to read uh, our own psychology into Jesus, not to, to look to him and, and to think that he's a savior who's, who's filled with all of our fears and our despondency and all of our personal hesitations. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I must go on my way, he says. There is a compulsion in Jesus' language, a sense that he can choose nothing else than the path that leads to Calvary. But just because Jesus is compelled, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's being driven there against his will. Jesus doesn't go up to Jerusalem like some sad little kitten who's thrown into a crate and hauled off to the vet to be declawed. There is no resignation, even if there is a compulsion, even if there is a divine must, even if there is a course that must be completed there in Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem because it's there that he's going to fulfill the will of the Father. It's in Jerusalem that he's going to experience the pleasure of saving his people. That's what the scripture tells us, isn't it? Psalm 40, verse 7 and verse 8. Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So now the New Testament takes that prophecy and applies it to Jesus. He's the one whose food and, and drink was to do the will of the one who sent him. He's the one who lived every single moment without ever swerving, living for the smile of his Father. He's the one who delights to do the will of God. 
what is the will of God for him? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He delights to do that will. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. And he delights in that. He must do that. He must go up there to finish his course. It was the will of the Lord to make his soul an offering for guilt. It was the will of the Lord to make him bear the sins of many, to make intercession for the transgressors. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem because he had to. He went in order to experience the pleasure of fulfilling the will of his Father by offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners. I wonder if we ever meditate upon that aspect of the crucifixion. I know that when we think of the cross, when we think of Jesus and his approach to Calvary, we, we're typically drawn, because it's such a warm picture and such a human picture, we're drawn to the picture of Jesus on his way to Calvary and stopping off at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see him there in the scriptures and he's sweating drops of blood and he's crying out to the Father, Lord, let this cup pass from me if there is any other way. When we meditate on the cross, we tend to think of how horrendous and how painful it all must have been. And it was. It was supposed to be. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans to be a spectacle of horror. It was how they frightened subjugated nations into submission. It was meant to churn your stomach, and if you had seen someone crucified in front of you, you would have been sick. That was why they did it, and it was shameful, and it was barbaric. It was unspeakably terrifying. And mark my words, there was absolutely, positively, nothing physically pleasurable about the crucifixion that Jesus suffered on behalf of his people. And yet there was a joy. There was a deep and spiritual and divine eternal joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because he delighted to do the will of the Father. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy through the cross. The cross was an instrument. It was a means to an end. It was an instrument for, of salvation for his people. It was there at the cross and, and in the tomb and in that empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday that Jesus completed his ministry. It was there that he finished his course. It was there that he offered himself as a willing sacrifice. It was there that he became the substitute to deliver the elect from the wrath of God due to them for sin. It was there that Jesus enjoyed the delight of doing the will of his Father. And so he must go to Jerusalem. He can do nothing else. He can choose no other. He doesn't go there to save himself from Herod. He goes there to offer himself for sinners. He doesn't go there to escape an untimely death, but to embrace it. Jesus goes because he's utterly determined to complete the work of saving his people. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the Savior that Luke places before our eyes in this text. He's the Savior who will not be denied in his mission to deliver his people from sin. And I think if you have ever struggled with the idea of the assurance of your salvation... This is a picture that ought to be dear to your soul. 
the doctrine of assurance, the idea of, of, of even being able to be assured of our salvation is something that Calvinists like us tend to put a lot of emphasis on, and right we should. It's something of, of a culmination doctrine. It's sort of a capstone doctrine of, uh, of the truth of the Protestant Reformation, the idea that our, our salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, that he has completed all that's necessary to bring sinners to the Lord, that it doesn't depend upon us, but it depends upon God. It is, it is a sort of capstone doctrine. It's the overflow of believing. And the God who has called his elect before the foundation of the world, the one who sends his son into the world in time, the one who still sends his Holy Spirit to call his people irresistibly to himself. It's an overflow of believing that our standing is in Christ and it comes from God and it doesn't come from us. Assurance of faith is, is something of a crowning jewel of a Christian's lived experience. But precisely because it is a part of our experience, right? Precisely because, uh, because assurance isn't just a doctrine you can read about uh, in the systematic theologies. Precisely because assurance of salvation is something that's subjective and it's personal and it's experiential for a believer. Precisely for those reasons, there, it's a sense of our salvation that sometimes ebbs and it flows according to how we feel at a given moment. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a true believer can have salvation and then lose it. We do not become more or less justified in the sight of God as we go on in our faith, as we walk with Christ. It's not something that comes and goes, but our experience of salvation, our sense, our, our peace, our, our sense of security in Christ can rise and fall like the tides. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have felt the rise and fall of assurance I can guarantee you. It happens for many different reasons. Sometimes it happens because we fall into some vile sin that we promised ourselves we would never take part in. Some bridge far too far. Something that we would never even get close to, but suddenly there is a rebellious pattern of red flag sins that brings you to your senses, that snaps you back, that makes you wonder if you've ever actually been a Christian. And if there's hope for a sinner like you at all. Other times our assurance is, is shaken through suffering. An intense heartache, whether you saw it coming or whether it took you by surprise. Sometimes it's slogging through long years of chronic illness and they grind you down and they leave you weak in your faith and doubting in God's goodness. And your assurance is shaken. Sometimes you, you simply drift a little bit off center, don't you? You begin listening more and more to the fears and the lies of the world without coming back to the promises of Christ all throughout the pages of Scripture. Your spiritual life begins to feel dry. Your, your prayer begins to shrink to the point that it's almost non-existent. You begin to feel like Ephesus, that you have lost your first love. You begin to wonder like David, if the Lord can restore the joy of your salvation. Well, this is why we need this portrait of the determination of our Savior. It's why we need to recognize that in some ways, thankfully, Jesus is not very much like us at all. So that when we find ourselves weak and failing and tossed by doubts, we can look again to the Savior who has set his face toward Jerusalem. 
so that we can look again to the Lord who let no threat, no power stand in the way of laying down his life as a ransom for his people. So that we can look again to Christ who is determined to finish the course of salvation. And that passage from Hebrews chapter 12 that we quoted just a little bit ago. That's, actually, that's exactly what that passage tells us to do. Hebrews chapter 12, picking up the second half of verse 1, says, Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you hear those commands in that passage? Look to him. Consider him. Behold your Savior who refused to abandon the salvation of his people. The truth is that in this life we're often tempted to grow weary and faint-hearted. And it doesn't matter how much of the good theology you know, we are tempted to think that sometimes our salvation depends on us. At least to sense that it does, to feel that it does. Even if you know in your heart and in your mind that it depends upon him, sometimes we're tempted to think that it can be affected by our outward circumstances and our suffering. And that's why Luke has recorded this snapshot of the Savior. So that we would see Jesus as he is. Not as we imagine him, not, not as we think he might be, so that we would see his face set toward Jerusalem, so that we would see his will fixed on the cross of salvation, because he is the basis of our assurance. Luke has written these things so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught about Christ. And so, dear weary believers, behold your Savior. Consider him. Look to the one who will stop at nothing to complete the work of saving his people. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your grace poured out to sinners through Christ. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you are the one who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you that when Christ determined to go up and to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, there was nothing that could deter him, nothing that could sway him. And even now as he sits at the right hand of the power on high, O oh Lord, he intercedes for saints and nothing will stop him interceding for us. Nothing can silence his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Nothing can close the new and living way that he has opened into the holy of holies through his flesh. Oh Lord, we thank you for the perseverance, for the determination of our Savior, and for the assurance that we find in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.